Thank you, children. Who is Jesus? Let me ask you again this morning. This question is for you. Who is Jesus? This question is often posed in evangelistic messages or at Christmas. Who is Jesus? I want you to think about this question. Who would you say that Jesus is? He is my Savior. That is a wonderful answer. Some say that He is a good and wise teacher. Others say that He is a prophet. And by the way, each of these titles are titles in the Bible given for Jesus. If you're here this morning, on the Sunday before Christmas, most likely each of you would be able to affirm these two titles even though you may not claim yourself to be a follower of Jesus. He's a good teacher. He's a prophet. The question is, can we say more about Jesus? Can we say more than these two answers? Last two weeks, we have looked at Jesus, the King of Israel, and Last week, we looked at Jesus, the Son of Man, and we have unpacked the meanings of these titles and the implications for us. But friends, perhaps the most controversial title or perhaps the most controversial answer to the question, who is Jesus, is to say that He is the Son of God. People are okay to say, well, He was a wise teacher. We could rally up all the religions of the world and accept that. We could probably rally up and say, well, he was a prophet sent from God. And people would be together on that. But when you say Jesus is the Son of God, all of a sudden, division starts to rise up between world religions. It is when we make this assertion that Jesus is the Son of God that we have the major divisions between the three monotheistic world religions. To say that Jesus is more than a prophet is to break away from the monotheistic claims of Islam. To say that Jesus is more than a rabbi is to break away from the monotheistic claims of Judaism. So answering the question, who is Jesus, by saying that He is the Son of God, has become a major divisive factor. So if answering this question in this way brings so much division, should we abandon that question and answer for the sake of unity and for the sake of peace in the world? Who is Jesus? But claiming that Jesus is the Son of God has implications not only for how we regard other world religions, but also it has implications for Jesus' authority over the world and over the people of the world. 
Thus, the title, Son of God, applied to Jesus, has some major implications for us, for His people, at Christmas. So this morning, I would like for us to look at the theme of Jesus, Son of God. Would you open your Bibles to the Gospel of John? Now, if you have your bulletin open and you look at the, at the references we have, I have listed there probably one of the longest strings of references ever. And... We'll touch upon each of these or most of these references at some point during the sermon. But for the hearing of God's Word, I would like for us to look at John 3, 16 to 18. And then we'll turn to John 15, verses 16 to 25. If you have your Bibles, um, the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you, you may find this passage on page number 922. Here's the Word of the Lord for us. John chapter 3. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Turn with me to chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to verse 25. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the, father's lo- for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as a father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and now has come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our congregation, for our hearts. Let's ask Jesus to speak to us and to reveal himself to us through his Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads and pray. O our Savior, the one who was born in Bethlehem for us, 
We receive your word in these moments and declare that we cannot get it unless your Holy Spirit, which you and the Father sent for us, would illumine our minds to understand your word. Would you do so? Would you do so? We ask in these moments for your glory and honor. Amen. Well, the idea of the Son of God is used in the Bible in a few ways. You would be surprised to hear that the, the phrase Son of God was not referred first time to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I saw some of you just look a little puzzled. Yes, the phrase Son of God was not used of Jesus for the first time in the Bible. Actually, we are told that the first son of God was Adam. Luke writes the genealogy of Jesus, and he gives a very long list of names of the sons and their fathers all the way to Adam. And when he gets to Adam, well, here's what Luke says in chapter 3, verse 38. He says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the Son of God. Adam is the first Son of God because God created Adam. Remember the story in Genesis? Adam was the first Son of God. But there's a second meaning of the phrase Son of God in the Bible. And it refers to the people of Israel. Israel collectively as God's people are described as God's son. Remember Moses was asked by God to go to Pharaoh to ask Pharaoh to let God's people out of Egypt. And here's how God told, Abraham, uh, told Moses to describe his people. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. Because Israel was supposed to relive the story of Adam. So the second meaning of the phrase son of God is Israel. And then there's a third meaning referring to Israel's kings. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 God speaks to the incoronation, to the crowning of Solomon and gives a promise and says, I will be his father and he will be my son. God declares this about this new king of Israel. I will be his father and he will be my son. And he goes on and says, when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. And as we know the rest of the story of Israel, with very few exceptions after Solomon, with very few exceptions, most of the kings disobeyed the Lord. So the Lord kept his word. He disciplined them. So the third meaning of the phrase Son of God is to refer to Israel's kings. On the backdrop of these meanings, a few centuries later, we have the fourth meaning of the phrase Son of God. When angel, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary 
to announce to her the following words. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One will be called Son of God. The fourth meaning in the Bible of the phrase Son of God is to refer to Jesus because Jesus, in some sense, is recapitulating, reenacting the story of Adam, the story of Israel, and finally the story of Israel's king. That's why he was called the King of Israel. But in some ways, while all the Gospels refer to Jesus as the Son of God, in the first three Gospels, this title is given to Jesus primarily by angels or demons. Very, with very few exceptions is this title given to Jesus by men or by Jesus alone in the first three Gospels. But in the fourth Gospel, the Apostle John is camping out on this theme of Jesus, Son of God. From the beginning of the Gospel to the end of the Gospel, he is full of testimonies that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and unlike all the other Gospels, in John's Gospel, this phrase is uttered always by people. Not by angels and demons, but by people. John wants to, to point out that the one who became flesh is none other than the Son of God. So friends, the very first testimony that we have of Jesus as Son of God is in chapter 1. Now let's look through those. There's eight references that I have given you in the bulletin. Let's look through those very quickly. Chapter 1, verse 34. The first testimony that we have that Jesus is the Son of God is given by John the Baptist. In verse 34, after John has just told the world, here is the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Then just a few verses later in the same chapter, another Israelite gives a similar testimony. Nathaniel, about whom Jesus said, Here, a true Israelite, exclaims about Jesus in verse 49, and he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Yes, it is very significant that from the very beginning of this gospel, two Israelites claim that Jesus is the Son of God, not just an angel, not just the demons. By the way, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first one who claims that Jesus is the Son of God is, is Satan. When he says, if you truly are the Son of God, do this. In John's Gospel, it's different. People, people testify. True Israelites testify. Yes, he is the Son of God. The next time someone in the story of John confesses Jesus explicitly as Son of God in a positive way, is in chapter 11. Turn with me to chapter 11. When Martha, when Martha says to Jesus after he, he was late to his, to his brother's burial, and Martha was hoping that had Jesus come earlier, his brother may have not, her brother may have not died, and Jesus and Martha get into a little dialogue, and Martha explains, yes, Lord, I believe, I believe that you are the Christ, 
the Son of God, who was, to, who was to come into the world. This is the last time in this gospel that someone positively acknowledges Jesus as Son of God. There's one more time, the last time Jesus is explicitly identified by one of the characters in John's gospel as Son of God is at his trial in chapter 19 at the crucifixion. But in chapter 19, that confession is not a positive confession. It's rather an accusation. Actually, we find out that Jesus was crucified for the very claim of being the Son of God. In John's gospel, it was this accusation that secured Jesus' crucifixion. But in this gospel, it's not just people of the story that claim that Jesus was Son of God. Jesus himself claimed to be the Son of God. In no other gospel is Jesus explicitly claiming without shadow of a doubt, plainly, that he's Son of God, except in John. Now, in all the other gospels, he acts like one. But he doesn't say it that explicitly, except in this gospel. Three times in this gospel, Jesus says about himself that he's the Son of God. Look at chapter 5, verse 25. I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. In chapter 10, verse 36, I'm just reading through these references. We're going quickly through them. What about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus asks the Jews. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am the Son of God? And then in chapter 11, back to the Martha story. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was dead, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So three times in this gospel, John claims about himself, or Jesus claims about himself to be the Son of God. But there's somebody else in this, story, in this gospel that claims that Jesus is the Son of God. Not only the characters in the story, not only Jesus himself claims that he's the Son of God, but the narrator, the one who tells the story, John the Apostle, is also saying very explicitly that Jesus is the Son of God. As a matter of fact, this is the purpose why the fourth gospel was written. Turn with me to chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. I know we're cruising through the Bible this morning. It feels like Sunday school. It's a sermon. Because I want us to see how often and how explicitly this theme of the Son of God is prevalent in this fourth gospel. Look at why the author, look at why the Apostle John wrote this gospel. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in His name. Yes, it is for you. If, if you were to ask, why is John writing this gospel? 
This is it. This is the purpose of the fourth gospel. So that his readers, we, may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, as a narrator of the story, John intervened earlier in the story to give us a narrative explanation to make sure that we understand from the beginning that Jesus is the Son of God. And that narrative comment is the most famous verses, or the most famous verses in this entire gospel, John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Now, I know if you have one of those Bibles that um, the words of Jesus are in red, John chapter 6, 3, 16 through 18 will show that these are the words of Jesus. But, but commentators debate. It's very possible that actually it was a, it was a narrat narrator's comments to speak something after Jesus just finished his dialogue with Nicodemus. It doesn't affect the authority of these words. They're still inspired. But here's what John says to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one, his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he does not, he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Yes, John wants us to understand that the Son of Man who is going to be lifted up on a pole as Jesus identified himself to Nicodemus is also the Son of God. At Christmas, friends, God made a gift to mankind. We all give gifts at Christmas. Perhaps to reflect God's own act of giving. But none of our gifts come even close to what God has given us. What makes God's gift so different is not simply the value of His gift. That his, the, gift of God's, the value of God's gift is, is just tremendously more valuable. What makes God's gift different is the nature of that gift. He doesn't give an object. He doesn't give a flower. He doesn't give an iPod. He doesn't give a car. He doesn't give a book. God gave a different kind of gift. And that difference is in the nature of the gift. God gave a son. And that's what makes God's gift so totally different than any other gift we could ever give ourselves. God gave a son. So today I'd like to unpack for us, what does it mean that God gave a son? The most unusual Christmas gift of all. God gave a son. What does that mean? Two claims. Two meanings. I'd like to look at and then draw some implications of this for us. Because that's what makes Christmas so powerfully different. The first point is this. God 
gave a son. But it's his unique son, his one and only son. Jesus is the unique Son of God. Even though we have seen how the phrase Son of God is used in the Bible with three meanings referring to Adam, Israel, or Israel's kings, when this phrase is used to describe Jesus, we find that it is a very unique sonship. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave his one and only Son. The idea of the one and only first appeared in chapter 1. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who, became, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, from, verse, from the first 14 verses of this gospel, the author, John, wants to give us this hint of the absolute uniqueness of the one who became flesh. This means that God has no other sons of the same nature and substance as this son. He has other sons by the fact that he created us. He created Adam. He called Israel into the existence. He appointed Israel's kings. And we're told that he, may, he calls us his sons and his children if we follow Christ, if we receive Christ. But Jesus, he is the uncreated Son of God. The one who was from the beginning with God. The one with no beginning, just as God was with no beginning. That's why it's so significant that this gospel begins with the words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was in the beginning with God. Friend, from the very beginning of this gospel, we are confronted with the absolute uniqueness, with the absolute uniqueness of God's Son. He was the one and only Son. Now, this phrase of one and only, or, or the only son, is an echo of how God called Abraham to bring his son as a sacrifice. When God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son. First time in the, God, first time in the Bible when we're told about someone, your only son is when God speaks to Abraham and calls Abraham to bring his son, his only son, to bring him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Now here's an interesting thing. If you know anything about the story of Abraham, is that by the time God calls Abraham to bring his son, his only son, we find out that Abraham had another son already. So in what way can, Jesus, can God call Abraham to bring his son, his only son, when Abraham had already a son? Did God not know about Ishmael? Oh, he did. But this was the only son of promise. This was Abraham's only son, which God had promised Abraham. The other one 
was Abraham's doing when he was desperate and he thought he had to help God. But this one is the only son that God had promised to Abraham. And God is asking Abraham to give him up. God is asking Abraham to go through a test. The same test that God himself was going to go through centuries later. Only in the case of God, it was not, the, it was not a, a test. For him, it was a display of his love for us. And when Abraham brought that son, just a few moments before bringing him a sacrifice, God intervened. And God said to Abraham, Stop! Do not do anything to him. I know now that you fear God. By the way, in the Old Testament, the point of fearing God is the same way as loving God. The same kind of meaning. I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And we were told that Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Abraham's story is a foreshadow that a time will come when God will provide once again. Only that time, God will not provide just another ram. God will give his son, his only son, his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. What makes God's love appear so grandiose in John's gospel, friends, is this beautiful, fine touch of the Apostle John that no other gospel mentions. That he gave his one-of-a-kind son. And this is, at this Christmas, we could, we could understand God giving us his one-of-a-kind son. That's another way of, of translating the phrase, his one and only son. His one-of-a-kind son. Now, can you love in this way? This is how God loved us. Can you love in this way? Can I love in this way? You may say, well, I can't love like God. Can you love like Abraham? Abraham loved God and feared God even though Abraham lived thousands of years prior to Christmas. Prior to seeing God's love for us and giving us His one and only Son. But the purpose of that reflection is not simply so that we have something to stare at or celebrate. We look at the Son of God, we look at the love of God in giving us His Son so that our own hearts might be touched and transformed by the love of God. Beholding the beauty of God's love, seeing it and meditating on it affects our own love for God and for one another. Friend, in what way in this Christmas in what way is this Christmas challenging you to examine your own love for the Lord and for others? Is there someone you need to reach out to? Perhaps make a sacrificial act of kindness. Perhaps even in your own relationship to God, you may have given Him your leftovers. Christmas is a reminder. It is a time to re-examine our love in comparison with the love that God has given us in Christ. Not only is Jesus presented as a unique son of God, as the one unique son of God, but Jesus 
came to reveal us a father in the most unique way, unlike any of the prophets before him and unlike any of the apostles after him. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says to Philip, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Friends, no one in human history has ever claimed this. To see me is to see the Father. But Jesus, the Father is revealed uniquely through Jesus. Israel knew God as a creator. Israel knew God as their redeemer, as the one who rescued them from slavery to Egypt, the one who brought them into the promised land. Israel knew God as their ruler. But now, Jesus came to reveal the Father with an unparalleled clarity. So much so that to see Jesus is to see the Father. And to say that Jesus is God's one and only Son has implications not only for how we see Jesus, but for how we see God. And this has an important implication for us. This means that other views of God which do not recognize His unique Son lead to false views of God or point to other gods altogether. That is why it is incompatible to claim that all religions are the same. They are not the same because their God is not the same. To claim that God is father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to stop there and not acknowledge that he's also father of, the, of, of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, is to affirm a different God. And that's why it's difficult as we engage with friends and people who come from the Muslim background or from the Judaistic background to claim that we do not worship the same God because we do not agree that this God we worship is the Father of the one and only Son that He has. So it has implications for us to say that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. It has implications for who Jesus is. It has implications for who God is. Friends, the last time the phrase the one and only shows up in this Gospel of John is in John 3.18, the passage we read. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This means, dear friends, that the object of our belief is not just God. The object of our faith is not just Jesus. The object of our faith is not just Jesus as Son of God. The object of our faith is Jesus, the one and only Son of God. Do you see that? Oh, friend, I wonder if, if you believe this this morning. Because the Bible says that those who choose to fail, who fail to believe this, those who choose to reject this truth, actually stand condemned already. So John's gospel makes such a big deal about this point that Jesus is the Son of God, the one who is God's one and only. But friends, I want to point to you that Jesus as Son of God shows His divinity, His sonship to God in two ways. And we'll talk about this very briefly. As Son of God, Jesus shows that He's the Son of God in two ways. He shares in the work of His Father. That's how Jesus shows his 
divinity as the Son of God, that he shares the work of his Father. And that's the argument he, Jesus made with the Jews in chapter 5, when Jesus was heal healing a man, and he did it on a Sabbath. And Jesus says, yes, I am the Son of God, because I share in God's work. God is at work. My Father is working. And whatever the Father does, he is giving the Son to do. He's giving me. Now, the two most significant things that the, the Father in the Old Testament was known to do was that he was the creator, the one who created life, and he was the ruler, the one in control of everything. In Jesus and God, John's gospel does many signs, and all of them are to point that he does the things that his Father has done. But the last sign Jesus does in the gospel of John happens in chapter 11. In chapter 11, both truths that Jews expected God to do, namely to rule over the universe, over everything, and to give life, both of them appear in chapter 11. When Jesus stands at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he speaks with authority. And his authority is so powerful that dead people hear it. Jesus speaks to a dead man. And dead people listen. Only God had that authority. And Jesus says, look at least to my works to show that I am sharing in the Father's work. I am doing the same things my Father does. I have authority to speak to dead people, and they listen. You know, the only people who didn't listen to the authority of Jesus in the Gospel of John are the Jews, the ones who are alive. And the second way we show that we know that Jesus had authority to speak to dead people is the fact that he gave life to them. In the resurrection of Lazarus, we actually see the proof that Jesus shares in the Father's work and does everything that his Father has done to rule over creation before creation ever existed and to call it into being when nothing existed. In the same way, Jesus spoke to a dead man when there's no life and that guy just starts coming out. And in the same way, Jesus gives life where there's no life, showing that he is God. How amazing. Jesus shows that he's a son of God because he carries on the works of his father in the same way that he has happened in the Old Testament. Creation and ownership. But there's a second way Jesus shows that he's one with the father. And the Jews realized, figured this out. Hey, we want to stone you and kill you, not because you heal on a Sabbath, but because you make yourself equal to God. But in that very passage, the next thing Jesus does is that Jesus shows his sonship by his dependence and obedience to the Father. Both in what Jesus taught and did, both his words and miracles, he highlights his total dependence on the Father. Look with me to verse 19 of chapter 5. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. 
whenever Jesus talked about his status as a son of God, he did not talk about equality with God, even though that was true. Whenever Jesus talks about the son of God, about himself as son of God, he talks about his obedience and submission, his absolute submission to the Father's will. And this shows an incredible point, dear friends. For Jesus to say that he is the son of God does not mean that he can do whatever he wants. For Jesus to say that he is the son of God does not mean that he's independent. No, Jesus affirms his total, absolute submission to the Father's will. That's why it's no surprise when Jesus speaks to his disciples in John chapter 15, and he talks about what it means to follow Jesus. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Because Jesus himself said that about himself in relation to God. And he wants us to have the same kind of relationship to him as he had to his Father. Do you see that? How sad that today, when we think of being children of God, we oftentimes think of being independent of God, right? Doing whatever we want. To be true children of God, Jesus shows us, is to grow in our absolute submission to the Father's will. That's how Jesus is the Son of God in the Gospel of John. Friends, we come to the end of the sermon. I wonder today, as we reflect on Jesus, the one who was born and announced as the Son of God, do we see, do we cherish his absolute uniqueness, his preciousness, the one and only? Do we see how uniquely he reveals the Father to us? Do we see his power, his majesty, and yet his submission and obedience to the Father in the same place? I pray that at this, at this Christmas, as all of us reflect on the Son of God who has given to us, that we would learn what it means to be sons and daughters of God in perfect obedience to Him, in perfect submission as a way to show that this is how Jesus, if Jesus did it this way, we want to follow Jesus in His path. Friends, Jesus, Christmas is a time when the most precious gift was given to us. And that's why at Christmas we should and are called to meditate on how precious Jesus is to us. Let's bow our heads and pray.